Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we are in Luke chapter 12, and I'll read verses 35 through 48. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. This is the word of God. Please give it your full attention. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ who's speaking. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the third, second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. If you happen to be a fan of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles football team, do we have any of those here? Is anybody here a fan of <laughs> There are a few. I'm always amazed here in central Pennsylvania that uh, we have so few Philadelphia fans. We tend to lean towards Pittsburgh here. But if you happen to be a Philadelphia sports fan, you've been one for a while, then you'll know that there is a phrase that will live on in infamy for any fan of Philadelphia sports, and that phrase goes like this. For who? For what? How many have heard that? For who or for what? All right, some of you, maybe one of you knows what I'm talking about. This goes back a ways. So that's probably why you haven't heard about it. Back in 1995, the Philadelphia Eagles signed a star running back, an expensive free agent named Ricky Waters. Ricky Waters came onto the team, and in his first game in an Eagles uniform, he had a horrible day. He rushed for 37 yards. He fumbled twice. But what he'll always be remembered for is one play in particular, that first game he played for the Eagles. In that first game, he was told by his quarterback, Randall Cunningham, to go on a crossing pattern. If you know anything about football, a crossing pattern is one of the most dangerous plays for a receiver. 
because you run partway down the field and you cut perpendicularly across the field and you're vulnerable. You can get hit hard by guys, uh, defensive backs coming at you full, bowl, full war. And so it's a dangerous play. But as Ricky was cutting across the field, he, and the pass, and Randall Cunningham threw a perfectly timed and placed pass for him to catch that and keep running. But as he saw a defensive back zeroing in on him and coming at him hard, he stopped and let the pass go by him. And it was obvious to everybody that he had committed a cardinal sin for a receiver in the NFL. And after the game, the reporters asked him about that play, of course. And his response was this, I'm not gonna let myself get knocked out there. For who? For what? Ricky Waters never lost that image of selfishness the whole time he played in Philadelphia. If you know anything about Philadelphia football fans, you know that that kind of attitude is not going to fly. The image of selfishness. For who? For what? I was reminded of that controversy as I was studying this passage this week. For who? For what? It's actually a question all of us should ask every morning when we get up. For who? For what? Those are actually profound questions as you think about the day that lies ahead. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you care for your family, as you go to the shopping center. For who? For what? Luke chapter 12 is it's a long chapter we've been studying. And if you picked up on a theme, I think the theme of the whole chapter is how do we live in this fallen world as with fears? We have real fears of living in this world. And in verses 4 through 12, Jesus taught us that we're not to live in fear of those who mock or abuse us in this world for our faith. In verses 13 through 21, Jesus told a parable where he taught us not to live in fear for the future, but not to put our hope and our security in earthly things, earthly possessions, earthly wealth. And then in verses 22 through 34, he taught us not to be anxious about our earthly needs, what we'll eat, what we'll wear. But how are we to live if we are not to live for this world's acceptance, if we're not to live for this world's possessions, if we're not to live for this world's rewards, if we're not to live for this world's pleasures, how are we to live? And that's where the question for who or for what becomes so important. That's how we overcome our fears, our insecurities, and our anxieties in this world. By asking that question as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, for who or for what? It's interesting at this point, after dealing with all of our fears and anxieties of living in this fallen world, at this point, he points us to his second coming, his return. That's what will keep us living for him and not for this world, is by being focused upon his coming, his return in glory. C.H. Spurgeon once said, time is short, eternity is long. It's only reasonable that this short life should be lived in the light of eternity. That's about as basic as common sense as you could possibly have. If life is short and eternity is long, then you should live for eternity, not for this short life. Jesus tells two parables here to address the question of how to live until he comes again. Both of these parables are about servants living in a household, working in a household, a rich man's household, a master's household. 
And in both these parables, the master has gone away. Maybe in both cases, but at least in the first case, he's gone away to a wedding. And every time you hear wedding in the teaching of Jesus, think about the second coming, because it's usually attached to, it's a metaphor he uses for a second coming. Weddings in the first century could last many days. And so there are basically two assumptions behind both these stories that Jesus tells. One is that he's going to be gone for a while. There's going to be, we're going to get impatient because he's going to delay in coming. He's not going to come on the schedule that we expect him. There's going to be a long delay. And I don't think the first century disciples had any clue how long that delay was going to be. But the second message that he actually not only assumes, but actually states outright, he puts it in terms of a leaf, a thief breaking in in the middle of the night. The thief doesn't tell you he's coming. Matter of fact, that's the whole point, is he doesn't tell you he's coming because then you'd be watching for him. But the second coming of Christ is going to be unannounced, unpredicted. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be a surprise. He could return at any time. So in light of that, what do both of these parables that Jesus told us teach us about how we are to live as we wait for our returning master? That's really who we are. We are people who are waiting for our returning master. Matter of fact, somebody asks you what you do for a living, that could be your answer. I'm waiting. My whole life is about waiting. A person's identity is important. People in our culture talk about that all the time. What's your identity? Well, it's important to know for who or for what. What tribe do you belong to? For whom do you serve? For why? You know, for what do you serve? Why are you serving? Important questions. And our identity as believers is that we are servants of the master who is coming again. And we serve a kingdom that is not yet complete. But it is a kingdom that will be complete when our master comes again. We live to do the Lord's will. We live for his glory and for his kingdom. And we are accountable to him as our master. That's the basic idea behind both these stories. I want to point out one thing. As we look at the details of the parables that Jesus told, it's easy to see the parallel. Jesus is the master, we're the servants, but some of the servants in the household end up being punished and cast out of the household. And so therefore, it'd be easy to misinterpret this parable to teach the idea that people could be servants of Christ, could be believers, could be Christians, but if they don't serve well, they're going to end up being cast out of the kingdom. It's not the, the idea of this story is not that some Christians are going to serve well and therefore be accepted into this eternal kingdom, and some Christians will serve poorly and be cast out of this kingdom. These servants, the servants in the story, represent those people who claim to serve the master, but the story shows us that they don't truly serve the master. If somebody were to ask some of these servants for who or for what, they would say for me and for my purposes, my kingdom. They're not truly serving the master. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, said this, that these parables show not what a person ought to do to be saved, but what a saved person ought to do. Let me say that again. These parables show us not what a person ought to do to be saved, but what a saved person ought to do. Ought to do. If you are born again by the sovereign grace of our God, by his grace alone, then 
This is the result of the Holy Spirit that he has given to you as a gift is that the Holy Spirit transforms you gradually, progressively into being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. We emphasize grace here, that everything good in us and everything good in the world is a gift of God's grace. But service is the effect of grace. Service is the fruit of salvation. We are saved by grace apart from works, but we are saved so that we might do good works. That's the purpose of the Lord in saving us. And so when does this separation between those who are from the heart truly servants of the master and those who pretend to be servants of the master but ultimately are cast out, when does this separation take place? Well, again, we're talking about the second coming. When Christ returns... We will see for sure that separation between true servants and false servants. But in the meantime, you can begin to see the difference in the way that the servants live. And that's what these parables are about. So how does a true servant of the master Jesus Christ, how does a true servant wait for his return? What does waiting for Christ look like? The first point that Jesus makes is we serve faithfully. Faithfulness is an underrated trait among believers. Faithfulness is so important to what it means to be a true servant of Christ. In verse 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Stay dressed for action. Do you know what he literally said in the literal language, the original language of the New Testament? In the Greek, it's translated, gird up your loins. Awkward language for us, isn't it? I mean, if your boss came into your office tomorrow morning and said, gird up your loins, you'd probably report him. But the point is, that's how they had to prepare themselves to work in the first century because they wore those long robes. I'd hate to be dressed like they dressed in the first century. They wear these long robes, but if you want to walk any significant distance, if you want to run especially, or if you want to work hard, what you do is you pick up the front of the robe and you tuck it in your belt. It's kind of like a diaper. I'd Another reason I wouldn't want to dress that way. But an odd thing, but to them that was natural. That's, that's what it meant. If you want to work, we would say roll up your sleeves and get to work. That's what we would say. Be prepared to work. Be faithful. You've been given a job. You've been given a mission. You've been given a place in this world. You've been given gifts. You've been given opportunities. Roll up your sleeves and get to work. Be faithful for why you're here, why you've been placed here. God has providentially brought together many things to put you where you are as a servant of Christ. Serve faithfully. Don't weigh yourself down and don't tie yourself up with worldly distractions. Certainly don't tie yourself up and tangle your feet with sin. That's to gird up your loins, to roll up your sleeves means to put aside the distractions, put, up, put aside the entanglements. It's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 12 when he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The second phrase that Jesus uses here is keep your lamps burning. Again, using the language, the metaphors from the first century. That's how they had light in the household is they had these oil lamps with wicks. And if you let the oil run out, the wick would stop burning and the household would go dark. In other words, keep the lights on while you're waiting for your master return. Keep the lights on. No one can do their work in the dark. 
And certainly no one wants to be a servant in a household when the master returns and the household is dark and quiet, which means nobody's working. Don't be like the five foolish virgins in another story that Jesus told who went to the wedding feast but didn't bring enough oil. They weren't prepared. They weren't being faithful to what they were supposed to do. And so they had to go, had to leave the wedding feast and ended up being shut out of it. Both of these images, the idea of of, uh, staying dressed for action and keeping your lamps burning, both of these images speak to just being faithful in your everyday life. Be faithful until Christ returns. Are your loins girded? Are you dressed ready for service? What are the sins and earthly concerns and earthly distractions that are keeping you from being faithful in your service to the Lord Jesus Christ while you wait for him to return? That's his first question. Secondly, is your lamp burning? Or has the oil run dry and is the fire burned out? Are you keeping your spiritual resources full or are you drained, listless, falling into the old ways? How do you keep your spiritual resources full? It's very simple. We say it week in and week out. You've got to keep drawing upon the means of grace that Christ has given to his church to keep our oil filled to keep the lamp burning, to keep our spiritual strength up, to keep our discernment so that we can tell the difference between what's the world's worldview and what's the Bible's worldview. So we can tell the difference between what's sin and what's righteousness. So we can tell the difference between what's the will of God and what's conforming to this world. The means of grace are simple. Be in the word of God. Studying and reading devotionally. Reading it as a love letter from your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ while you wait for him to return. Be in the word. Be in prayer. Pray. That's how you keep yourself filled spiritually and keep your vision clear and your feet untangled to be faithful in your calling. Partaking of the sacraments is another means of grace by which you get strengthened spiritually. When you receive this Lord's Supper, you are strengthened spiritually when you do so in faith. The fellowship of people in, of God's people in worship and service is a means of grace to you. And I want to clarify, we're not talking about super service here. We're not talking about super sainthood. We're not talking about being a superhero in the kingdom. I don't think that Jesus has in mind that we be out there preaching on the corner in downtown State College, preaching the gospel every day, 40 hours a week. I don't think that's what he's talking about in Faithful Service. He's not talking about winning hundreds of people to Christ necessarily every year. He's not talking about taking in 20 orphans and widows into your home. God might call some of us to that, but most of us are called to ordinary faithfulness. Serving Christ, living for Christ, pursuing holiness in every part of your life. Being a a consistent witness in your words and your actions to the people around you. Being faithful in the the career that God has called you to, the career that he's equipped you for, the, the people that he's placed in your life. Just be faithful as a servant. That's what that first parable is about. For who? For what? For your returning king and for his kingdom. Secondly, a true servant waits with spiritual alertness. Verse 37, 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. It's related, obviously, to having your lamp burning, but wakefulness is an important attribute of a servant, according to the New Testament. You see it over and over, especially when the Lord talks about or one of the apostles talks about the second coming. No servant wants to be caught sleeping on the job when the master shows up, even if it's in the second or third watch of the night. Now, let me just explain what Jesus means there. There's two ways that the New Testament talks about watches of the night. It's a time designation. The Jewish people divided the night, and they considered night from sundown or 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. That's the night period, the night half of the day. And from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., they divided it into three equal sections of four hours. And so a second or third watch would be the, the, the second or third set of four hours. The, the Romans divided time into four sections, actually, four sections of three hours each. And so sometimes when the scriptures, the New Testament talks about watches, you have to figure out, are they talking about Roman designations or Jewish designations? But either way, we're talking late at night. When Jesus says the second or third watch by either designation, he's talking about late at night. In other words, a long delay, but you stay faithful even when being faithful is hard. And you do so by being spiritually wakeful. In the New Testament, sleep, when it's used as a metaphor, the concept of sleep is being caught up in the sinful thinking and the sinful actions, the sinful lifestyle of this world. Another similar New Testament concept is intoxication, being kind of drunk with the ways of this world, where your perception begins to become worldly. Your values begin to become worldly. Your worldview becomes more like the world's view instead of the scripture's view. That's what it means to sleep spiritually. When Jesus taught about his second coming, he often said, watch, be awake, be alert as you wait for him to return. Let me give you one example from Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 34. Jesus says, and this is after a long section of teaching about the second coming. He says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You see how he contrasts being awake when he comes with being drunk or being asleep in the ways of this world. The keys to wakefulness, again, are the means of grace. There's no magic formula to this. There's no secret potion. There's no sudden, you know, no weekend seminar you can go to. It's as simple as keeping yourself in prayer, keeping yourself in the word of God, keeping yourself in the fellowship of the church, in the worship and the sacraments of the church, so that you can stay awake, so that you can stay alert, so that as our master delays and you wait for him to return, you don't slide back into the old life again. Are you alert and awake spiritually this morning? I see some of you struggling to stay alert and awake physically, but that's a different story. (laughs) Thirdly, Jesus addresses servants who have responsibility for other servants. He zeroes in as a subgroup of the servants that are waiting for their master to return in his third 
point that he makes in the second parable where he teaches that especially if you have responsibility for other servants, you must serve selflessly. You must put the needs of those for whom you're responsible before your own. That's what it means to be faithful as we wait for him to return. Verse 41, Peter, of course, the, the talkative one, the aggressive one, Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Probably what he means is, are you, Lord, you just told this parable about servants in your household and serving faithfully and serving watchfully. Are you talking just to us 12 disciples, the ones who would become the apostles who established the foundation of the New Testament church? Or are you talking to every disciple, anybody who claims to follow you? We know that because Jesus makes the distinction in the story that he tells. Jesus doesn't answer him directly, as Jesus often doesn't answer directly. He answers his question with a question. But he tells a story about those servants who are given extra responsibility. He focuses upon one of the servants. It says when the master leaves his household, he chooses one of his servants and makes him the manager over the household, which means he was responsible to make sure that the other servants did their work, but particularly he's responsible to make sure that they were fed and that their basic needs in life were met. And so that servant as a manager was a steward who represented the, the homeowner, the household owner, the master. And he says in verses 43 and 44, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Those who lead faithfully, those who serve other servants by leading them in the home, in the church, in whatever setting you are responsible for other believers, you'll be greatly rewarded because you handled the extra responsibility well as your Lord and your master would have you handle it. But greater responsibility in the kingdom of God, in the household of God, is a high-risk, high-reward situation. Because if you do not serve faithfully as one who is given greater responsibility for the well-being of other servants, you'll come under severe punishment. Verse 45 describes a manager who used his authority and privileges selfishly. While his master was gone, when his master delayed, he began to beat and abuse the other servants. He indulged himself on the food and the resources of the master, and he got drunk on the master's wine. And what will happen when the master suddenly, without warning, returns? It says he will be cut in pieces. I think our Lord intended to shock us with the punishment. Personally, I would have fired him. But Jesus says you'll cut him in pieces. And I think we were meant to be taken aback by the punishment. I think that Jesus is making a very strong point here. That it's severe punishment when God entrusts his servants. When the Lord Jesus Christ entrusts his servants into your care, you better lead and care for them as he would care for them. And if you refuse that, and if you abuse them, if you take advantage of them, you'll come under severe punishment. And maybe I need to pause here for a moment and just clarify that the Bible teaches that there are degrees of reward for faithful servants and degrees of punishment in hell for those who disobey and abuse. 
contrary to popular opinion in the church, God does not look at all sin the same way. I hear that often in the church. People saying, well, one sin's no different than another to God. But that's not true. That's not biblical. Speaking of children, in, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, if you abuse one of these little children, you're, you're, you're going to be punished greatly for that sin if you do not repent. It's a serious sin to abuse those who are vulnerable under our care. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking about towns in his day that rejected the preaching of the gospel. And it sa he says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Solom Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Any Jewish person would have thought, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they've got to be the towns that are going to be under greatest judgment. No, Jesus says, a town that has heard the full gospel the full good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejects that is going to come under greater judgment because Sodom and Gomorrah did not get that much light of truth. In John chapter 19, Jesus is talking to Pilate, the Roman governor, as he stands before him in trial. And he refers to the high priest of the Jews that had sent him over to Pilate to be crucified. And this is what he said to Pilate. He says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate is not going to be in the deepest pit of hell. The high priest of the Jews would be in the deepest pit of hell because he had the word of God. He had been enlightened with truth and yet rejected Christ, whereas Pilate did not have that privilege and advantage. In a little bit closer to home, and this is where all the elders and Bible study leaders and Sunday school teachers start to squirm. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you presume to feed the servants of Christ, the word of God, if you do it faithfully, you stay faithful to him and stay faithful to the word, you will be greatly rewarded. But if you abuse that privilege and you mislead people from the word of God, if you become a false teacher, you're going to come under the strictest, most severe penalty. The harshest language in Scripture is re reserved for false teachers. Those people who say that they speak in the name of Jesus Christ and represent him, but yet lead you away from Christ and teach a false gospel. The deepest pits of hell are reserved for false teachers who lead people astray in the name of Christ. We tend to think that people like Hitler or Mussolini or Saddam Hussein or Genghis Khan, those will be the guys in the deepest pits of hell. No, it's going to be the false teachers, the cult leaders, the prosperity gospel preachers, the ones who speak in the name of Christ but lead people astray. See, all this is just to make the point that if you're not faithful, if you're not watchful, but instead you take advantage of people under your care, you will come under strict judgment. Jesus states the principle clearly in verse 48. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. 
I don't know about you, but I've been grieving and weeping over the headlines in the newspapers over the last few years of spiritual leaders in the church who, in the name of Christ, have abused the sheep that belong to Christ. Women, children, young boys, pastors who have bullied instead of led like Christ. We are in an age where there is a rash of horrible shepherding in the church. And there will be great judgment if these men do not repent, if these leaders do not repent. But see, here's where the hope was for these disciples. Could you imagine the disciples, if they rightly understood Jesus' parable here? They'd be shaken in their boots. And they should be. Except that they would come to understand why Jesus came the first time. Jesus came to die on the cross for the sins of those who truly trust in him. If their faith in him was genuine, if they were born again of the Holy Spirit, and they truly trusted in him for their salvation, all their sins, past, present, and future, would be forgiven. So their failures, and all of us fail, I fail. There are some weeks I'm a very poor shepherd in the church. And I would be in despair and despondent and be in terrible fear of the judgment of God except for the blood of Christ that has covered that sin. And so if you truly trust the gospel, then you are truly a servant of God and you will never come under judgment. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8. Eleven of those disciples would put their trust in their risen Lord and they are already living in their great reward in heaven in his presence. One of those 12 disciples would live selfishly. He would not, he would pretend to serve Christ, but he would end up betraying Christ and rejecting him. And he is paying for that eternity, in eternity, and he's, being, he's paying with a severe penalty. You see, we emphasize the gospel here. God loves his children. Christ loves his true servants. But there is a real problem in the church of people who think just because they go to church, they're Christians. They think just because they claim to be a, a member of a church that therefore they are servants of Christ. But it is faithfulness and watchfulness and selflessness that characterize the true sheep, the true servants, the ones who are truly born again. If the Holy Spirit is in you as a gift from God, this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that you live faithfully, watchfully, and selflessly. Perfectly? No. Matter of fact, we have a long way to go to perfection. But if not increasingly, then it's a matter of great concern. Every day, we who are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ have to ask ourselves, for who and for what? Do I serve myself and my kingdom and my purposes and my agenda? Or do I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead and is coming again? And I serve the purposes of his kingdom. I am waiting for him. That's my life is about waiting for him. Can my life, I want you to ask yourself this question, can my life be described as waiting for the new heavens and earth? Or is it better described as indulging in the pleasures and rewards and distractions of this life and this world? Born again, justified servants of Christ are those who are being sanctified. As they look at their lives, they are seeing the work of the Holy Spirit and seeing that faithfulness is becoming more and more the characteristic of their life. 
watchfulness and waiting for the Lord is more and more becoming a characteristic of their life. And selflessness, dying to self and putting the needs of others before our own is more and more becoming the way of life. That's the evidence of the Spirit's saving work in you. But just one more point. I don't know if you noticed it. There's a twist in the story, something that would have stood out and surprised the disciples as they heard it. It says in verse 37, when the master comes again, what's he going to do? He will dress himself for service and have the servants recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's eternity. That's the eternity that we're waiting for. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming again and he's going to take away all the sin. He's going to take away all the suffering. He's going to take all the flaws. He's going to take away all the mistakes. He's going to take away all that, that is wicked, all that is dark, all that is empty. And he's going to restore this universe to what it was always intended to be. And we will live and dine it not only in his presence, but he says he will serve us at the wedding feast of the Lamb when he comes again. That's what this meal's about. If that's your hope, if you're waiting for your Lord to come and serve you at the wedding feast of the Lamb, this meal is the foretaste of it. Let's pray as we prepare to come. Father, There are some troubling words in these stories that Jesus told. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to hear those troubling words, that needs to shake in their boots because they have not been living and waiting in faithfulness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they have been caught up in the ways of this world. They've given themselves over to sin. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would awaken them, open their eyes, Show them the hope that is in Christ for this life and especially for eternity to come. Lord, I pray that as we gather around the table, we would all be encouraged by the fact that Jesus Christ is crucified for our sins. He has been raised from the dead, conquering sin and removing the guilt and shame of our sin. And he is reigning over all things at the right hand of you, the Father in heaven. And one day he will come again and all of our hopes all of our dreams, all of them will be fulfilled. For we live for him and for his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.